Uh, this can be our this can be our Christmas special, Michael. What do you think? <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> chapter Isaiah chapter seven fourteen. It says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, <laughs> in my new King James, it has son capitalized with uh, capital S. Uh, will bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the, uh, the corresponding verse to this in the New Testament, according to the list, the new standard revised list, is Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And the messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, is to be born of a young woman. Oh, look at this. It says to be born of a young woman slash virgin, and in brackets, Alma. Thoughts? <clears throat> okay. Um, you know, it's interesting that this really, although uh, for some reason they give the reference here to Luke chapter 1, I would have expected the, you know, probably the, the more reasonable uh, reference would have been to Matthew chapter 1. Mm-hmm. which actually quotes Isaiah chapter 7. I don't think that Luke mentions Isaiah chapter 7. Um, so uh, even though scholars question whether Matthew was actually the first of the Gospels written, most people think that Mark came first, mm. Matthew maybe 10 years later. But in, at least in, a, in the text that we have, Matthew was the first book in the Christian scriptures. And uh, Matthew chapter 1 being the first chapter, this is really the first, um, Isaiah chapter 7 is the first of the so-called fulfillment texts texts in the New Testament, meaning that especially in the book of Matthew, Matthew has quite a few um, passages where the formula is that Jesus fulfilled that which was written in the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is the first one. So I think it's 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 significant that the very first time the New Testament cites a verse from the Hebrew Bible claiming that it's a messianic prophecy fulfilled by Jesus um, is this passage in Isaiah. And I think, unfortunately for them, um, it gets off to a very bad start, meaning I think that um, we're going to see that Matthew gets this passage in Isaiah so wrong and in so many ways that I think it becomes an embarrassment for Christians. And I think that's why what we're seeing, I think, over the last few decades is that many missionary uh, groups and enterprises really no longer trumpet this passage They're in Isaiah. They're shying away from it. Yeah. They're shying away from it. Now, now it's fair, th- because the next one on the list, uh, in the New Revised Standard list, she does list here Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, in reference to the, uh, the prophecy that he is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, it's, uh, I will read it. Let, let me just read it, because uh, it says... Uh, All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, uh, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. And it goes on to say that uh, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife Mary. He did not know her until she had brought forth 
her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. Now, of course, we've already discussed that his name isn't Jesus, it's actually Yeshua, but it's not Emmanuel. Now, it's interesting that you should say that um, that Christian the Christian endeavor is shying away from this one. If I may, can I read you what it says? I've got a little study note in my New King James. Would you like to know what it says? I'm curious. It has a little in-depth study, and this is uh, it's very telling, I think. It says, uh, Emmanuel. It says, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. End quote. During the Christmas season, Michael, it says, this verse becomes part of our common vocabulary, uh, Christian common vocabulary. Most Christmas pageants recite this verse and pastors explain the meaning of Emmanuel, God with us. How the prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of Christ is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, as you just pointed out. But there are still questions that surround this prophecy. For instance, how could the birth of Jesus be assigned to Ahaz? Sometimes unraveling biblical prophecy can be difficult, it says. It goes on to say, this is one of those cases. Christians have interpreted this prophecy in several different ways. Some uh, have thought that the anonymous, quote, virgin may refer to a royal mother, more specifically, Ahaz's wife, thus the child would be Hezekiah, Ahaz's successor. Hezekiah would be a sign to Ahaz that God was in control. The Lord was with Ahaz. He would be saved. Uh, He would save Judah from the enemies that, that surrounded Ahaz. Uh, enabling his son to inherit the throne. Others have identified Isaiah's wife, the prophetess of chapter 8, verse 3, as the virgin. It says, she was a young woman of maritable age, another meaning of the Hebrew word translated as virgin. They admit this, Michael. They're going to say the child in this case would be the, the son of Isaiah, and uh, his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us, to symbolize judgment and salvation. It, it says, uh, in fact, Isaiah himself described this, um, his children as signs to the nation in chapter 8, verse 18. And he delivered a similar prophecy for his son. Uh, it says, compare chapter 7, 16 with chapter 8, verse 4. The third look at this uh, in this little um, mini study here in my New King James Study Bible, it says, some cite that the parable between the prophecy that, quote, a virgin shall conceive and Jesus' miraculous birth as evidence that this prophecy was fulfilled only in Jesus, they, they say that this is the only way of looking at it. Uh, it says Mary was the virgin mother and the birth of Jesus was a sign of God's salvation. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us, because Jesus was the Son of God and he lived among us. According to this view, Isaiah's prophecy had no fulfillment prior to Jesus' birth. It's not uncommon for biblical prophecies to have one level of fulfillment in the, in the immediate future and one final fulfillment many years later in the personal work of the Savior Jesus. Thus, the pregnancy of Isaiah's new wife and the birth of her son could have been assigned to Ahaz. However, this would have been a fulfillment, not the fulfillment. And this is the way that they see it. And they, they finish it by saying the prophecy was completely fulfilled in the coming of God's only son to the earth. He is the only child who can truly be called wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Now that's chapter nine, verse six, and we will be getting there, but there's three views and they do admit that it's problematic and uh, they leave it to the, to the reader, I suppose, to decide which one they want to go with. And I think that's honest of them. And I think that's it's fairly honest. Yeah. And I think that what it illustrates is something that we've brought up before 
which is that what it immediately does is it removes this passage in Isaiah from what you could call proof or evidence. Meaning that, again, we have to appreciate that the whole enterprise here of this list, the people that compile the list, are trying to say that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, contains proof, evidence, Mm -hmm. that uh, Jesus was the Messiah. And that only works. You're only able to lay claim to have real evidence or proof when what you're presenting is clear and unambiguous. And the fact here that this commentary um, is really struggling message in Isaiah, and it's pretty clear to me that you know they, they seem to feel that on the simplest level of reading it, their interpretations, number one and two, make the most sense. Mm-hmm. And yet they're sort of stuck with the uh, interpretation of Matthew and Luke. And mm. so they have to somehow come up with some way of squaring um, what is a difficult text in Isaiah with the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth. And that's their third footnote. Um, although I, I was confused by what you read because at first they started saying that this third point of view insists that there was no fulfillment of this passage uh, at the time of Isaiah, and it only became fulfilled later on with the birth of mm. Jesus. But then they go back and they seem to say that actually there was a double fulfillment. They are clearly struggling with this passage um, mm. because of the tremendous difficulties it presents. And uh, again, all that our readers would have to, our listeners would have to do, is compare this again to a uh, pristine, clear, unequivocal. Uh, Old Testament prophecy that's really non-disputable about the Messiah. Just see the the nature of the difference between what is clearly a passage describing the person of the Messiah, like we'll get to, God willing, next time we meet, Isaiah chapter 11, mm-hmm. um, which all Jews and all Christians <laughs> agree, agree. about the Messiah, and because it's so clear. And th- this passage, which you can only really... Um, it's almost like trying to force a square peg into a round hole. Mm, you can only do that by applying a lot of spin and a lot of twisting and a lot of grease, and it, even then it doesn't really fit in that well. Um, what I found fascinating here, I mean, I, I, I may not understand the, the, the Greek scriptures that well, but I, I found Luke chapter 1, which is the verse, the cross-reference that's cited here, Mm. um, interesting because in the story that's told, basically Mary is told that she is going to conceive and she's going to give birth to this child. Mm. Um, She's not told in the the Luke, if you look at the text carefully, that she is pregnant. The the angel doesn't tell her she is pregnant. The angel says that you will conceive a child. And she objects at that point by saying, but how is that possible? I have known no man. Uh, I'm a virgin. Now, to me, that's a little bizarre because the fact that she's a virgin at this point doesn't preclude the the possibility of, at some later point, becoming pregnant and having a child. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I just found the tie-in between this very uh, first reference in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 to the, uh, the birth of a, um, of a child to a young woman slash virgin, connecting that to Luke, uh, to me, is strange because the story in Luke, um, it doesn't really read simply. It doesn't read smoothly because it's… I, I have to admit, I, I had not noticed that before. So, what you're saying that is in Luke, 
the angel is speaking to Mary saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to conceive, yes. though you have not been with a man. But in Matthew, that's not the case. In Matthew, the angel's talking to Joseph and saying, your wife is with child, and uh, and it is it is conceived by God. Is that? Yeah, and, and the, the problem in Luke is that her objection is sort of doesn't mean anything. I mean, what does it mean, you know, if, if, if a woman who has never been with a man um, is told by an angel, look, you're going to, in the future, conceive and have a child, you wouldn't object to that. You wouldn't say, that's impossible, I, I'm a virgin. Being a virgin is irrelevant because that doesn't preclude the possibility that she at some later sure. point will have sexual relations and then become pregnant. Um, so what I'd like to do, you know, given that this could be a, a huge project to grow through Isaiah chapter 7, is maybe just outline a few of the, I think, salient points. Um, first of all, let's think about what claim is being made here. I mean, like, okay, if we try to really penetrate, what is, uh, what's, what's the point of this whole prophecy? Why is this coming up on the list? And it, it seems that what the list maker is saying, and I think what Matthew and Luke are saying, is that the Old Testament provided a prophecy, a sign, and that's what Isaiah uses, the word sign, Mm. Um, a sign that would help identify the Messiah. That seems to be the whole purpose of the virgin birth story. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question would be, would a virgin birth really function as a sign? What's significant, and uh, I once did this as a project, is if you go through every single reference in the Hebrew Bible to the word sign, ot, what you see is that signs do not have to be supernatural. But signs are always visible. Matter of fact, the only mm-hmm. time signs in the Bible are supernatural, the only stories where they are supernatural is in the plagues of Egypt. Mm-hmm. But aside from those stories, every other case in the Bible of a sign, it's not supernatural, but it's always visible. It has to be something that you can see. Mm. And it's quite clear that a virgin birth could never function as a sign because you couldn't, for example, see... Mary uh, wheeling a baby carriage 2,000 years ago down the streets of Bethlehem and look at the little child and say, well, he's obviously the Messiah, this child, because I can tell that Mary is a virgin. Mm. That Mary did not walk around with a board-certified gynecological examination sticker on her right. clothing <laughs> telling everyone she was a virgin. You can't tell. And um, so it's clear that a virgin birth is just absurd. Even her own fiancé, when Joseph... Um, who wasn't actually married to her. And back then, 2,000 years ago, the, the marriage was really a two-staged process. They would have what they call kitushin, the betrothment or the engagement. Mm. Um, and they, the couple was legally married at that point. They were legally married, but they didn't live together. There was a period of about a year where the man would get the house organized and set up and, I guess, get things ready. And then after that period of time, they would have what is called an isuin, which was mm-hmm. the actual marriage, and they would sleep together for the first time. And this story takes place within that year period. And uh, Joseph comes home one day, and he sees you know, his fiance, as they say, great with child. And he doesn't assume that she's the mother of the Messiah. He doesn't realize this is a virgin birth. Virgin birth. He, he assumes that she was cheating on him. Mm. So it's very clear that this whole idea of this being a sign, the virgin birth, 
uh, as a useful sign. It, it's just absurd. I mean, it it doesn't say in Isaiah, "Behold, the goldfish will conceive and bear a son." That would be supernatural, and and that would be pretty amazing if that happened. You know, that's what you've got that image in my head. I've got a goldfish. I'm sorry, anyway, keep going. <laughs> I'm looking at a goldfish on your for your logo here. Uh, <laughs> it must have been sipping into my brain. Oh, uh, the poor goldfish. Anyway, continue. So, <laughs> another thing that's very interesting, by the way, is that in the uh, Gospels, there are stories where the you know the, the the Jewish opponents of Jesus, or maybe not opponents, just people who were sincere. They ask him for a sign. How do we know that you're mm-hmm. the Messiah? And Jesus doesn't offer the virgin birth as a sign. Meaning here, Isaiah says that God's going to give you a sign. Behold, this woman's going to give birth. And so when Jesus is asked for a sign, specifically in the book of Mark, chapter 8, he says no sign will be given to this generation. Now, he mm. simply could have said, God provided you a sign. It was a sign of this my, my miraculous birth to a virgin. In Matthew, it changes. In Matthew 12, he says only one sign will be given. But he doesn't give the sign of the virgin birth. He gives the sign of Jonah. Just sign as, of Jonah, yeah. So the, the claim that's being made here that this is a clear prophecy from the Jewish scriptures that identifies the Messiah is very problematic. And mm. what I'd like to do, just because time is, is precious to us, is just mm. point out um, the two basic problems with the New Testament reading of Isaiah here. Um, The two problems really are one of context and one of translation. Um, I often ask Christians um, who quote Isaiah 7.14, it's almost like it comes off the tongue very quickly, Mm. I ask them, do they know what's going on in the beginning of the chapter? What is chapter 7 of Isaiah talking about? What's the context? And I've rarely rarely met any Christian who knows What's going on in this chapter? And it's obvious that you can't really understand verse 14 plucked out of the rest of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, reading the chapter at the beginning, you see that it's describing a very acute and uh, serious crisis that was being faced by the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. We know that after the reign of Solomon, the 12 tribes split into basically two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim, basically the ten tribes. And there were the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin that were referred to the kingdom of Judah. And the king, the king of the south was called Ahaz. And what this chapter describes is his basically being very, very concerned because the northern kingdom, which were the ten northern tribes, entered into an alliance with Syria And these two superpowers, the ten northern tribes in Syria, were planning on coming down and just wiping him out. Mm -hmm. So they're terrified. And that's really the context of this chapter. And God is basically assuring him that he doesn't have to worry. And he doesn't seem to necessarily buy the assurances. So God finally says, look, I'm going to give you a sign. And God says to him, what is the sign going to be? He says it's going to be this young woman who's with child who is pregnant. So there was a woman, this is taking place 700 years approximately before the first century. Mm -hmm. There's a woman back then who is with child, who will give birth, and the child's name will be called Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. And we're told that this child is going to have a diet of honey and yogurt or whatever he's going to eat, curds and and honey. But Mm. the prophet says that before this child is able to distinguish between good and evil, these two 
kingdoms, these two nations that are vexing you, that are threatening you, will basically come to an end. That's the story here. And the story is very clear. It's very straightforward. It's quite, uh, it's not ambiguous. We see here a political military crisis that was facing the southern kingdom of Judah 700 years before the common era. And they're given a sign that God will be with them. And they're not mm-hmm. going to be abandoned. And that these two terrible enemies that are seeking their destruction will be destroyed within a very short period of time. Meaning that as a child, it, it's not clear is it the child of the prophet or is it the child of the king. But it's, mm. it's interesting that it speaks about a woman that they know. Meaning that the Hebrew word here is with a definite article. It's ha-alma, the young woman. And in Hebrew is called the hey the hay of knowledge, because we know who it is. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if these two men, Ahaz and Isaiah, didn't know who the young woman was, it would be a useless sign. I mean, if it's talking sure. about some girl in France that's going to give birth. Right. <laughs> so they don't know what's happening. But it's, it's a woman that they are familiar with. It's either mm. the prophet's wife or the king's wife. And we're told that, that before this kid can tell good from evil, I don't know, have that five, six, seven, eight years old, the t- Two powers that are threatening them will be destroyed. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that the second in Second Kings chapters 15 and 16, this prophecy is fulfilled. We see that basically the destruction of both Syria and the ten northern tribes disappear. Um, so the context is clear here. It's, it's unambiguous to the point, by the way, where in the Middle Ages, um, famous uh, Christian scholar Andrew of St. Victor, got into a lot of trouble because he essentially said that this chapter in Isaiah has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. He said it has to do with this political crisis facing the kingdom of Judah 700 years before Jesus. And dozens of Christian commentaries essentially take the same point of view. The Harper's Bible Dictionary, the New Interpreter's Bible, they all say that this chapter in Isaiah is not a prophecy about the Messiah it is describing a political uh, military crisis uh, that took place hundreds of years before Jesus. Um, it's obvious that the birth of Jesus 700 years later would hardly be a reassurance to King Ahaz or the kingdom of Judah. Uh, so let me, just, let me just ask you a question there. For such commentaries to make that claim, I mean, the, the, the New King James has done it in a very safe way. It said, here are the three views. You know, this is a prophecy that's somewhat problematic can be complicated to understand. And here are just the three views, and yeah, you make up your mind. What you're saying is that there is a number of Christian commentaries that say, oh, come on, guys, really, this is very, very clear what, what Isaiah chapter 7 uh, is talking about and has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Now, in doing so, they really are... Uh, well, they're really saying that the, the claims of the writer of Matthew are false, really. I don't I think mean, so. That's what they're saying, right? You don't I, think I, so? Okay. No, I think that what they would say is that Matthew is not really giving you a real interpretation of what Isaiah is talking about. I think that it would be perfectly legitimate for a Christian believer um, to say, look, there's no real connection between the chapter and Isaiah and the birth of Jesus. But we see a connection in the sense that, you know, there's a birth of a child, and there's going to be some great, you know, uh, salvation which comes as a result mm-hmm. of this child's birth. And, you know, the, the, it's, it's uh, you know, in, in a, I would say it's, it's a very poetic, allegorical, symbolic 
uh, spin on Isaiah. And I think it's possible to, to admit that on the level of just simply understanding what Isaiah is speaking about, um, you could say, as a Christian, has nothing to do with the story of Jesus, that, that Isaiah didn't mean or imply or intend to be describing the virgin birth of any child 700 years later. Mm-hmm. But I think that a person has the right to say that they see some kind of literary connection between the stories. A literary connection, sure, because we've seen literary connections. I mean, this list that we're going through is primarily literary connections, whether it be in phrase, in word, or in theme. Uh, However, it's a very difficult position to hold from a Christian perspective because, as I've already read, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. I mean, just to say that, that it, this, this was fulfilled uh, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, and then quotes specifically from uh, yeah, so, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So I think what, I mean, if, if I had to play the Christian here, <laughs> sure. oh, um, go ahead. that what it's really saying, I mean, look, if I didn't want to be generous, I would say that Matthew was just off his rocker and he was just... Uh, you know, he, he was totally, you know, uh, what he's citing here just has absolutely zero legitimacy. Either he was, either he was, I think it'd be fair for someone to come to the conclusion that the writer of Matthew was either ignorance of, uh, of Isaiah chapter 7 or was relying on the ignorance of his readers. Or I think to be generous, I would say that the writer does see from their perspective, meaning from their subjective allegorical symbolic perspective they see right it's meaningful to them a connection between the stories they see that on some level again it's in their mind from their perspective as believers in jesus they Mm -hmm. see that this story of isaiah is fulfilled meaning that it comes to its completion in the story of the gospel but again what's important to remember is that interpretation only becomes credible if you begin with the conclusion first, meaning you have to begin with your belief that Jesus is the Messiah who is born mm. to a virgin. Once you believe that, if you start off with the belief that Jesus is the Messiah born to a virgin, you could go back to the Jewish scriptures and say, well, where might that be alluded to? Where, that might, where can you find some hint to that? Where mm. do you find some allusion to that? Or as Carmen might say, a connection. And I, I think that that, again, if I'm trying to be generous, I don't want to, you know, uh, assume the worst for Matthew, but that he, I don't think he's trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes necessarily. Okay. But I think that as someone who is a believer in Jesus um, and someone who probably is convinced that every truth that he has has to be somehow alluded to or found in the Jewish scriptures, this seems to be for him. Uh, a meaningful hook. This is where he wants to... So, this, this in, in Christian theology, this is known as sensus plenure, I think is, is the way you pronounce it. It's the Latin for the fuller sense or the fuller completion of, of such a connection or the fuller fulfillment of a prophecy. Well, I think many uh, contemporary Christians speak about this idea of dual prophecy. Mm. That, you know, they speak about the idea that um, you know, obviously they they concur, they agree that when you read chapter 7 of Isaiah, it's talking about a particular historical event 700 years before the common era. Um, but they will say that it also has a, fulfill, a prophetic fulfillment 
700 years later with the birth of Jesus. I would... Well, now, I, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I just, it just occurred to me. I mean, so you're right. Dual fulfillment uh, is, is another way that you can describe this. There's nothing to stop an individual from having another private revelation, getting a, a following of that uh, revelation. Very charismatic person writes letters and books and, and, uh, and, and gets his religion up and going and then begins relying, of course, on the Tanakh and on the New Testament and then his writings as well and then invents another theological discipline called uh, not dual prophecy, but uh, what, what would we say? Uh, tertiary. Mary, ter- Thank you. Tertiary. <laughs> tertiary prophecy. Wow. Okay. You know, it's funny. I have on my bookshelf um, something that Mormons call a triple Bible. They should call it a triple right. Bible. And uh, it's because I, I had them in mind when I was saying this. Yeah, they have. They ha- I have. It's a very, very thick. I mean, yeah, you can't even get your hands around it. It's the Old Testament. Then there's the New Testament. Then there's the Book of Mormon. And there's Pearl of Great Price and Doctrines and Covenants. And uh, you know, they're sort of an illustration of what you're just saying. That that once the New Testament is able to come along and piggyback on the Old Testament and say, look, we have. Uh, another level of fulfillment of the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. You're right. Nothing is to stop, you know, Joseph Smith and whoever else is going to come after that and say, well, and we have a third level or a fourth level. I I often say this to my students. I say a text that can mean anything means nothing. That once you're able to, with total fluidity, um, spin a verse in, in ways which have nothing to do with the original context, then, again, everyone has a right to do it, but it, it, it's, it leaves you open to the same uh, process. People can do that once you start that process. And also, you don't really have the ability to go back and say, uh, and I have a good reason to believe that this was the intention of the original author. Meaning that I, I would say that to assert that Isaiah chapter 7 has a dual fulfillment, you'd have to find some reason in the text, meaning it'd have to be something in the text of Isaiah to tell you that you need to read this as one prophecy that will be fulfilled many, many, many hundreds of years later. Mm-hmm. I think just to invent this idea that the prophecy has dual fulfillment is very dangerous because it makes scripture meaningless. A second problem that most Christians don't think of when they propose this idea of a dual fulfillment I mean, I've asked this to many Christians. I would say, mm-hmm. well, then do you believe that there was a virgin birth during the time of Ahaz? You know, for Christians, the virgin birth is very critical because it ties into the deity of Jesus. Um, and uh, the idea that, that his virgin birth was not unique and there was a prior virgin birth 700 years earlier is very, very difficult. And if they're insisting that that's what's happening in this passage that's exactly what they have to accept that there were two virgin births and yet uh, and yet what the the uh, the understanding generally well as you said most christians don't understand the context of Isaiah uh, chapter 7 so it doesn't enter their mind as to what it meant in the day but uh, for those who do they will accept that the alma spoken of in uh, 7 verse 14 is a young woman Whereas when we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, 23, it's, uh, it's a virgin. Can you just remind the listeners the difference between Alma yeah, and I, Betula? I, I, that's the second. I, I mentioned there were two problems with Matthew's reading of Isaiah. One was context, and the second was translation. Um, mm-hmm. So I just wanted to make one more point that Please. this idea of dual prophecy, you know, again, 
it, it's problematic for so many reasons, but one of the problems is that when you read Isaiah chapter 7, it speaks about these two dreaded kingdoms that will be destroyed after the birth of this child. You don't mm-hmm. see any of that in the story of Matthew or Luke, meaning that it, it, it requires to, to, to have this dual prophecy it requires literally surgically removing just a few words from the chapter here and then applying it to something that happens 700 years later. There's no way of actually reading the story where the story itself has any kind of um, there's any fidelity to the story in Isaiah mm. and showing that it, all that stuff really happened uh, hundreds of years later. It, it's, it's a very, it, to me, it, it's what I would call a... a uh, interpretive rationalization or a grasping at straws to, to justify this idea of a dual prophecy. Now, when it comes sure. to translation, I mean, this is, the, the I think, one of the great weaknesses of, of Matthew. It's, uh, you know, it's just a classical, really, a mistranslation. The, the Hebrew, and there's no disputing what the Hebrew says, it's Alma. And Alma simply means, if you ask any school kid in Israel today, it means a young woman. Uh, it does not mm-hmm. mean a virgin. Um, Alma is basically the feminine form. In Hebrew, there are masculine and feminine nouns. So, Alma is the feminine form of the Hebrew Elam. And Elam is always translated, even in every King James Bible. It comes up several times in the Old Testament. Elam is always translated as a young man, and it's never translated as a young virginal male. Um, it, it has nothing to do with virginity. Um, mm-hmm. Alma simply refers to a person's youthfulness, their age, and it has no reference whatsoever to their sexual experience. Right. Um, now, it's interesting that a particular Alma might indeed be a virgin. I mean, people, Christians often argue that you know, young women were often or usually virgins. Um, mm-hmm. Now, back then, people did get married earlier than they do today. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, you could be a young woman at 12, you could be a young woman at 16, you could be a young woman at 18. Um, but th- the argument is often made that uh, when you go through the Hebrew Bible, the Almas, so to speak, these young women were all virgins. Mm-hmm. It's not always the case. We know there are times when the word Alma is used, uh, and it doesn't mean a virgin. But it, 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 it's important to understand the faulty logic here, because... Um, if you go through the stories in the Bible, you know, a particular Alma um, might be a, a, a virgin because she has not slept with any men, but she might also be a short brunette. And it wouldn't mean then that you translate Alma as a short brunette virgin. Um, sure. The word maintains its, its uh, authenticity. The word Alma simply means a young woman, whether she's tall or short, whether she's blonde or brunette, whether she's a virgin or not a virgin, mm-hmm. it simply means a young woman. And there is a particular word in Hebrew in the Bible for a, a virgin. Whenever the Bible is actually concerned contextually with letting you know someone's sexual experience, it mm-hmm. uses the Hebrew word betula. So, th- right. we have many, many examples in the Hebrew Bible where we're interested not in the age of someone, but in their sexual experience, and we have a Hebrew word for that. And the, to me, the, the 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 clearest indication that this is uh, so is that if we were to put together a list today of Christian translations of the Hebrew scriptures that have simply corrected this mans- mistranslation, 
I think I once came up with a list of about 20 uh, modern Christian translations of the Bible that agree that the word Alma simply does not mean virgin, it means a young woman. It's also mm-hmm. important to remember that even if you mistranslate this word in Isaiah as virgin, even if you were to mistranslate it as virgin, the text doesn't indicate that she would remain a virgin after giving birth, meaning every day of the year today, right, there are virgins who become pregnant and they give birth. That's very routine, but afterwards they're no longer a virgin. So if Isaiah here is speaking about a virgin who will conceive and bear a son, that's not so unusual. Isaiah would not be telling you that after conceiving and bearing a son, she would still be a virgin. So even if you mistranslate the word, which you shouldn't do. um, Now, one of the things that Christians will claim, this is a common claim, is that when the rabbis translated Isaiah into the Greek, um, call it the Targum Shivim, the Septuagint, um, they rendered the word as Parthenos. And they say that that word clearly means a virgin. And therefore, they say you shouldn't blame Matthew, or the King James at least, for rendering this as virgin. That's what the rabbis themselves uh, translated. So the truth of the matter is that the the origin of this translation of of the Bible into Greek is not as clear as Christians often assume it is, the rabbis only translated the five books of Moses, and the, right. the, the rest of the Bible was not part of their project. And we know that the, the preserving and transmitting of the Greek translation was really done thoroughly through the church. And one of the reasons we know this is because the Talmud, which speaks about the rabbinic translation of the five books of Moses, shows you there were about 10 places where the rabbis altered the translation of the text to... Uh, basically eliminate the possibility of misinterpreting it. And if you compare what the Talmud says was done 2,000 years ago to the uh, Christian versions today of the Mm -hmm. Septuagint, they don't at all line up. So it's very clear that whatever the rabbis did was not maintained and preserved by the church. But it's not true that in ancient Greek the word Parthenos meant a virgin. It could have been... Uh, it's almost very interestingly like the word Alma. It could either refer to a virgin or a non-virgin. Um, it was always referring to a young woman. But we have stories in the Bible, for example, in Genesis 34, where Dina, the daughter of Jacob, mm-hmm. is raped. And the Greek translation refers to her as a Parthenos, as, as, a, as a Parthenos after she's raped. After she's raped, right. Okay, so she's, but she's no longer a virgin, obviously. You so, think not. N- let, me, let me just, can I just repeat some of that back to you to make sure I understand? My, my understanding is that uh, the original Septuagint uh, consisted only of the first five books, the Torah. Later, and I mean much later, the rest of the, of the books of the Tanakh were added to the Septuagint. Nevertheless, what you're saying is that the writer of Matthew obviously relied on a trans, a, a Greek translation, uh, wherever it came from, a Greek translation of Isaiah. Uh, and even though the word that is used there, Panthenos, even though that word can be used for a young woman or a virgin, uh, he certainly leaned towards the understanding of a virgin. Therefore, it's not entirely his fault. Is this, is this where you're going? Yes. And um, it's interesting, by the way, that uh, I long ago purchased a uh, English version. I have to be careful I don't say English virgin. Uh, an English version <laughs> translation of the Septuagint into English. 
and there's a it's a Christian uh, uh, edition. It's done by Christian scholars, and in their introduction to uh, this translation, the Greek translation, they say something interesting. They say that the quality of the translations is very, very different between the books of the Bible. They say that the quality of the translation from Hebrew into Greek in the five books of Moses is the most accurate by far, and they say that the quality of the translation in the book of Isaiah is by far the least accurate and the worst quality translation. Um, So, uh, the point is that um, I think speaking, you know, as a rabbi, what I want to emphasize is that, you know, God did not reveal the Septuagint to us at Mount Sinai, Mm. uh, and the prophets didn't speak in Greek. And so, uh, you know, for for, for Jews, you know, we would feel comfortable if people are quoting from the Hebrew scriptures. And you're not going to score points with us by basing... Uh, an argument upon a translation of the scriptures into Greek or any other language. Um, again, Jews today don't study the New English Bible or the Living Bible. We study the Bible in Hebrew um, mm-hmm. because that's where that's the only place you're going to get really an accurate uh, sense of the language of Revelation. Um, t- to to be forced to base the the Gospels upon a translation of the Hebrew is just uh, for us doesn't get off the starting gate. Mm. If if you're forced and, and to rely on that, because where's absolutely. the authority? Where's where where does the That's the right. authority of that translation supersede what the Hebrew says? So it it's again it, it wouldn't be an impressive argument to say that Matthew is basing himself upon the Greek translation, but even if they advance that argument, the Greek translation itself does not necessarily mean a virgin. Now. Uh, Emmanuel, um, <laughs> it's a bit funny to have to even bring this one up, isn't it? Because I guess uh, as my uh, my study notes on my New King James tried to uh, explain, uh, Emmanuel, it says, I just repeated, it says, uh, at this time of the year, during the Christmas season, this verse becomes part of our common vocabulary. Most Christian pageants recite this verse and pastors explain the meaning of Emmanuel. But what it says is that uh, the child will be called Emmanuel. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it's referring to the name of the kid, right? Yes, and it's important to, to understand that God with us is really a mistranslation. Um, it's almost always what you'll find in a Christian translation mm-hmm. of Isaiah, but it's, really, it's, it's a very, very poor translation of the Hebrew. Um, in Hebrew, the... The, the verb form to be is simply understood. And so um, you'd actually accurately render this as God is with us. You would never translate Emmanuel as God with us. The, the, the translation would be really God is with us. And, uh, you know, I think this commentary that you brought up by the New King James uh, version here points out that this is not a name that Jesus was ever given. Um, and he's never referred to uh, as Emmanuel in the entire New Testament. Um, the idea of God with us, God is with us, really, fits into the context of the chapter, meaning the whole theme of the chapter is the sense of abandonment and terror that is being felt by the southern kingdom and King Ahaz. And mm-hmm. so the name of this child is very significant. God is basically saying, I'm yes. going to give you a sign to reassure you that you shouldn't be afraid. Why shouldn't you be afraid? Because, first of all, this kid is, in terms of time, going to show you sequentially or time-wise 
there's not a lot of time until these two kingdoms are going to be gone. So you could rest assured that within a few years, these people are going to be toast. But the name of the child itself is significant because mm. God is with us. God is not abandoning us. God is with us. And, uh, and it's reminiscent of uh, books like Hosea, where the prophet, uh, again, has children and they have names that are significant that relate to prophecy, right? All the time. Throughout the Bible, names are always used. Um, I mean, even in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, he has children. His names are significant. Mm. Um, another thing that's very, very important, I think it confuses many Christians, because this is really how they're spinning this, this name. To them, the name here isn't just a name. To them, this name indicates that this child will be God in the flesh. Because the the way they mistranslate it is God with us. So they see Isaiah is saying that this child will be God with us, God on earth, God, God coming. in the flesh, yeah. And so the name for them is uh, proof something. The name here proves that this child will be divine. Now, the, it's really strange that um, the, the Christian reader doesn't really appreciate usually that in the Hebrew Bible, um, probably the majority of names are names that are divine names. But if you go through the names of the characters in the Hebrew scriptures, everybody's name contains God in it. You know, mm, God here. Mine does. What's that? My name is Jonathan. <laughs> Yohanatan, which means... Uh, a gift given by, by God, gift. given by God. Yeah. <laughs> You're a gift of God. That's what I am. That's what I tell my wife all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't lay claim to that. My name just means he will laugh, Yitzchak. Um, but uh, my English name, Michael, right? Michael, who, he, yes. he who is like God. Uh, only my mother thinks that I'm God. No one else thinks that I'm God. <laughs> so... Every Hebrew name, Yehuda and Daniel and Eli and Elihu and Yeshayahu, Yecheskel. And you're, I mean, you go through, make a list of all the names in the Bible. Uh, they're virtually all divine names because they're not saying that the bearer of the name is God. I mean, think about how many Jewish people today are named Emmanuel. Uh, no one's going to assume that any of them no. is God in the flesh. So it's just sort of. It, it, it's uh, for Hebrew speakers. It's almost um, it's almost comical for people to read Isaiah chapter seven here, and really seriously think that Isaiah is telling you that this child is going to be God. Why? Because mm. his name is Emmanuel. It's it's really absurd. Um, no, I'm just going to say it's even more complicated though for the Christian, isn't it? Because it ceases to be. Uh, a, a personal name when you get to Matthew, it's no longer the, the actual name of an individual. It's now a title. Is that fair? I think so. Yes. Because uh, clearly, I mean, it, it, it seems very clear because Matthew or the writer of Matthew quotes from Isaiah and says, behold, um, you know, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated God with us. Verse 25 says, they, she brought forth the son and called his name Jesus. And you think to yourself, well, dude, come on. I mean, didn't you listen to the angel? <laughs> Snap out of it. The angel said that the kid's going to be called Emmanuel. By the way, some homework for the reader or the listeners. I keep on saying readers for our listeners. Is to really look carefully at how Matthew uh, quotes Isaiah. Because aside from the mistranslation of the word Alma as virgin, he really does a few sneaky things when he cites this verse in Isaiah. For example, I mentioned before that in Hebrew, in Isaiah, it's speaking about a woman that both 
Isaiah and the king, Ahaz, know, because it uses the definite article, Ha-Alma, the, mm-hmm. the yes. young woman, or let's say even the virgin. But when Matthew quotes it, he takes away the definite article. Yeah. He removes it. It's now a virgin. Because again, you know, if the Hebrew identifies this woman as someone known to both Ahaz and Isaiah, it would eliminate someone that's living 700 years later. So Matthew's forced to make the Hebrew less precise and more vague in order to open up the possibility that it's speaking about someone else. And then later, Matthew changes in the same verse, who's going to name the child? You see in, in Isaiah, she, this woman who's going to give birth mm-hmm. to the child, and she will name him Emmanuel. Ah, uh, very good point, in, yes. In Matthew, it's they will name They, him. Yes, that's right. So, what Matthew is doing is in order to allow for this, you know, uh, amplification, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of what Isaiah is actually saying, it, it really only gets off the ground when there's a manipulation of the text itself um, to allow for this amplification. Um, I just wanted to say one more thing about Emmanuel, by the way, is indicating Please. divinity, that you know, if it's really true, if, if that's the clear meaning of Emmanuel, if a child named Emmanuel, especially this child that Matthew's talking about, you know, if this name really does indicate divinity, that um, this child is named Emmanuel because this child is God who is with us, what is peculiar is that none of the people in the Gospels seem to have gotten this message because mm. when you read the story of Jesus growing up, it's very clear that his parents, his siblings, no one related to him as if he was God in the flesh. Um, you know, he says things that puzzle them and they think he's out of his mind. You know, he speaks about having to be doing the business of his father when he gets lost mm. in Jerusalem. What in the world is he talking about? Meaning that if it was clear to them when they fulfilled this prophecy of naming this divine child Emmanuel, that they were naming this kid Emmanuel because he is God with us, and that means he is God in the flesh, they clearly didn't understand mm. that he was a divine child because you don't see any stories in the Gospels where his family, who would have been the ones to have been most aware of his name and, and the, you know the process of his birth, no one seems to be clued into the fact that that this Emmanuel child is really God in the mm. flesh. Um, it's it's just point. hard to it's really square. Yeah, it's hard to square. We have done uh, one whole program on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've done really well. This is our Christmas special. Christmas special.